Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Happy Easter, everybody. Good to see you. You know that Easter is a big deal in the church. It's obviously a big deal here. And uh, at the same time, it's one of the easiest days ever for pastors. Because no pastor in the weeks leading up to Easter has spent a lot of time in their office going, what should we talk about Easter? What are we talking about? And so, uh, listen, man, they asked two great questions at the end of that. Did Jesus really come back to life? And if he did, does it even matter? And I want to throw in a third question. Did Jesus come back to life? Does it even matter? But I would say the more pertinent question is this. Does it matter to you? Does it matter to me? Does it matter to us? If you're online this morning, does it matter to you? And let me just start by saying this. If you're somebody who's always questioned the resurrection or you doubted the resurrection, you think, did he really raise from the dead? Could that have really happened? If that's you this morning, I just want you to know this. You're in really good company. You're in really good company. As we open the scriptures, as we look at the scriptures, and we see the story this morning, you're going to find that you're in really, really good company. And so as we look at the resurrection, look, I want you to know this. Nobody was expecting it. Nobody was expecting it. Nobody was waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody was waiting for the resurrection. Nobody was waiting outside the tomb, getting ready to count it down. Do you know, like, 10, 9, 8, start the trumpets, 7, 6, 5, send in the angels, 4, 3, cue the sun, cue the clouds. Like, that wasn't happening. Nobody was expecting it. Nobody was expecting the resurrection. And I'll say this, everybody was expecting Jesus to do what all dead people do, and that is stay dead. And so as we look at the Easter story, I think you'll find this interesting. In Mark's gospel, Mark starts the story, and he says this, Saturday evening when the Sabbath had ended. Now, just so you remember this, in the Jewish culture, a day starts at sunset, not sunrise. So the Sabbath would have actually started Saturday evening, Friday evening, and it would have ended Saturday evening. So this is now Saturday evening when the Sabbath had ended, and it says this, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, these three women... They went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus. And sometimes it's easy to ask, why did they wait so long? Why weren't they prepared? Why why weren't they getting ready? And the answer is twofold. Number one, it was the Sabbath. And so they couldn't go by because you couldn't sell on the Sabbath. And number two, their heads were spinning. Like, their heads are spinning. This has all happened so fast. Think about this. Late Thursday night, Jesus was, it was taken by the mob. Then after midnight, in a completely illegal manner, even in their culture, he was tried. He was taken to Caiaphas, the high priest's house, and then later he would be taken to Pilate, right? And then sometime during the morning Friday, the Roman soldiers began beating him and whipping him. And then eventually, before noon, Jesus was probably hanging on the cross. And by 3 o'clock, he was dead, and they took him to a tomb. This whole thing happened so fast, their heads are spinning. They haven't processed this emotionally. They haven't really had a chance to think about this. Their heads are spinning. And so Mark continues his story, and he says, Then early on Sunday morning, that was Saturday evening, now on Sunday morning, just at sunrise on Sunday, they go to the tomb. And on the way there, they were, they were asking each other, Who's going to roll the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? They're thinking they'll go in and they'll anoint the body with these spices. And maybe, perhaps, they're thinking, man, maybe we'll get to sit next to the body. Maybe we'll just get to say something to him. Maybe, maybe this will create some closure. Maybe we'll, we'll be able to just wrap this up emotionally. Right? And then he continues the story and it says, But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which is very large, had already been moved aside. It was, it was already gone. The stone was already gone. They were looking to maybe go inside the tomb. They didn't know. Three women didn't know how they were going to roll this large stone. 
And then here it is already gone. And then I like Luke, who investigated everything thoroughly. It says that Luke interviewed scores and scores of eyewitnesses. And Luke records detail for us. And so Luke tells us this, that they went in to the tomb because the stone had been rolled away, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And you can imagine these women, because they're close to Jesus. They've been with him for three years. They've walked with him. They've seen how he's lived. They've see, heard his teachings. They've, they've seen uh, just countless miracles. And you can imagine these women are now going, the body's gone. He rose from the dead. This is awesome. Jesus said he was going to raise from the dead. Now he's risen from the dead. That's exactly what they had to be thinking. That's what we would think. But fortunately for us, John records some of the conversation because we know this wasn't true. John, in his gospel, records the conversation. And one of them said, well, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. And we don't know where they put him. Nobody was thinking resurrection. These women were with him for three years. They weren't thinking resurrection. Nobody said, hey, the body's gone. That's awesome. Of course, he rose from the dead. Just like he said he was going to raise from the dead. Now he's gone. Of course he's gone. He said he was going to rise from the dead. Nobody said that. These women were close to Jesus, and nobody was thinking resurrection. And it wasn't just the women, because the scriptures tell us that the women left, and then the women went and found the disciples, and they told the disciples what had happened. And when they told him, it says that the disciples, they couldn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They seemed like nonsense. They didn't have any clue what was going on. But I'm telling you this, they didn't think resurrection. Nobody was thinking resurrection. And as we like to say this, nobody expected nobody. They weren't thinking that. The people who were closest to him, who'd been with him for three years, who'd seen countless miracles, he'd said over and over and over, they'll bury me, but in three days I'll rise from the dead. Nobody was saying that. And then we have an account of Peter because Peter and John, they were there when the disciples were told. And they think, we got to go see. we got to go see what, what's going on here. And they run to the tomb, Peter and John. And it's fun because if you read John's gospel, John makes it very clear, right, that he was the disciple that Jesus really loved. And John makes it very clear that he's the fastest runner because he got there first. John makes a big point out of that. But in Luke's account, Luke simply talks about Peter. And he's talking about Peter here. And he says, stooping, Peter is he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. The empty linen wrappings are actually very important because what it tells us is it's an actual physical resurrection. This isn't what's a, wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. His body was raised from the dead, right? You wouldn't steal a body either. The body wasn't stolen because you wouldn't steal a body and undo all the wrappings. You wouldn't do that. You'd just steal it, right? So first it says that he saw that the, empty, the empty linen wrappings, and then it says, and I love this word, then he went home again wondering. He was wondering what had happened. Again, Peter was extremely close to Jesus. He was one of the inner three. He was one of the closest three. And Peter wasn't thinking to himself, that son of a gun, he rose from the dead, just like he said he was gonna. Now, Peter goes home and he's wondering. And I'm telling you, if you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered about the resurrection, you're in excellent company. Nobody was expecting nobody. They didn't expect the resurrection. And what I love about this, and what I love particularly about the word wandered, to me is it points to the validity of scripture. Because if the scripture was just written to make the case for Christianity and how awesome Jesus was and how awesome the disciples were, they wouldn't put a word wandered in there. And what it says to me, they, they continue to document their own disbelief. They, they document this over and over and over. The, the, the gospel writers document this kind of stuff. Well, that was Sunday morning. The resurrection happened Sunday morning. The body's gone. But now what about Sunday evening? Well, on Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. You're darn right they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They just crucified their leader. 
It's not going to be open season on all the rest of them. It's open season. And so they're meeting behind locked doors. They're very afraid. Now, here's where this story gets really interesting. They're in this room, and it's behind locked doors. The doors are locked. They're hiding. They're in a room. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus enters the room. The doors are locked. They're all hiding. Jesus enters the room. They're not thinking about Jesus. They're not thinking about resurrection. And then I love this. It says, the whole group was startled and frightened. Do you think? They're startled and they're frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Of course they were startled. Of course they were frightened. And Jesus, in just his manner that he does, and I love this, Jesus says, why are you frightened? Like Jesus has this way of doing that. In Mark chapter 4, we read this account, and Jesus is uh, with the disciples, and they're in a boat, and they're on the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden, the storm just whips up. And I mean, the boat's taken on water. It's taken on water. And the disciples, it says, they think, and these are, some of these are fishermen, and they've been on the sea, and the disciples all think they're going to drown. And so they go find Jesus in the boat. He's sleeping. They go find Jesus in the boat, and they wake him up, and Jesus stands up. He, he addresses the waves, and he says, shh, quiet, be still. And the sea just instantly calms. And then Jesus looks at the disciples, and he goes, why are you guys frightened? It's just a thing that he says to them all the time. He says, why are you frightened? But he didn't just ask them why you're frightened. He says this, and why are your hearts filled with doubt? You guys didn't believe that I was coming back because on countless occasions I told you three days and I'll rise again. You're the ones who were with me daily for three years. You're the ones who saw miracles. You, you heard my teachings. You know your Old Testament prophecy. You would know this. And then Jesus goes on to say to them, he says, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus didn't say in the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. They had what we would call the Jewish Old Testament. They didn't call it the Jewish Old Testament. They called it the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus said, you're Jews, and you know this. And you know what was written in there. You know that it has to be fulfilled. You know that. And further, he says, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah, he's talking about himself, that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. You guys weren't paying attention? You guys weren't listening? Like, you haven't, you haven't been paying attention this whole time? And then he goes on and he says, it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Here's this message, ready? This message is this, that there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. That's a big deal, but I'm telling you this, what Jesus is about to say next, if you got lost somewhere, if you just got bored of listening to me ramble up here, you just got to lean in because Jesus is going to say something, and I'm telling you, this is the difference maker. Jesus then says this, and you also are witnesses of all these things. You are witnesses. And here's why this is such a big deal. Because we don't believe the foundation of the Christian faith is not, is not that something was written. We don't believe in the resurrection because something was written. That's not the foundation of the Christian faith. The foundation of the Christian faith is an event. That's the foundation of the, think about this. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's being crucified. There's no followers of Jesus. They're not going to launch a movement in the name of Jesus. At this point, nobody's ever going to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Nobody's ever going to tell the parable of the prodigal son. No, it all started with an event. 
and the event is a resurrection. You say, well, Neil, we believe the resurrection because of the Bible. No, we don't believe in the resurrection because of the Bible. We actually believe in the resurrection because there are witnesses, because there are eyewitnesses. We believe in the resurrection because someone like Matthew, who was with Jesus every day for about three years, saw all the miracles, heard all the teachings, after the resurrection, now they realize that this really is the Savior, this really is the Messiah, and now Matthew, in great detail, begins to write it all down. He was an eyewitness, and he wrote it down, and we read the words of an eyewitness. That's why we believe in the resurrection. We believe because people like a man like Mark, who hung out a great deal with Peter, and Peter was an eyewitness, and Peter told him everything in great detail, and Mark wrote it all down so that now we read the words of Mark through an eyewitness. We believe because a man like Luke, who says, I thoroughly investigated, and Luke literally interviewed scores and scores of eyewitnesses, and then he wrote it down in great detail. We believe because a man like John was an eyewitness, he eyewitnessed the resurrected Jesus. Again, with him for three years was his closest friend. John was the closest friend, we believe, of Jesus, and he wrote it down. Those are the words of an eyewitness. We believe because a man like Peter, who again was one of Jesus' closest, he's one of the inner three. He's Peter, James, and John are the inner three, and Peter walked with them for three years, and he saw the miracles, and he heard the teachings, and then Peter, think about this. This is Peter. Peter didn't believe. And then he believed. And then he unbelieved. And then he believed again, and he preached powerfully in Acts chapter 2. Think about it. He believed. He didn't believe, rather. Then he believed. Then he was confronted by a middle school girl, and he unbelieved, and he denied that he had ever believed. And then he believes again, and he preaches the gospel. In fact, he goes into the streets in Jerusalem and says, how could you guys crucify this Jesus? He's risen from the dead. Peter then writes two letters that we now have in our New Testament. They're simply called 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in 1 Peter, Peter writes these words, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and I'm an eyewitness to it. We believe because a man like James, now this is not James the brother of John, this is James the brother of Jesus. They share the same mother, they just have a different father. Listen to me, James, it's documented all through the gospel accounts that the, that the brothers of Jesus did not believe that he was the Messiah. They did not believe in the, that he was the Messiah. There's an account in the gospels where Jesus steps into a house and he's gonna teach, and as always the case, when Jesus goes into a house to teach, it's packed. It's instantly packed. It's busted at the seams. People are standing all over the front doors. And Jesus is in there teaching, and his brothers and his mother come to the house, and they're going to drag him out because they're afraid he's going to say something crazy. They think he has a Messiah complex. They don't believe that he, he's the Messiah, the Savior. And yet we have a letter in our New Testament called the book of James. Right? Now think about this. James now is the brother of Jesus. Think, if you're the brother of Jesus and you're writing a letter, think about how you might introduce yourself. Like you have an instant resume. Watch how James introduces himself to other churches. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I always pose this question. Answer this. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was your Lord? James eyewitnessed a resurrected Jesus. How did James die? James was thrown off the temple because he was proclaiming that Jesus was a Christ. It's recorded by Josephus, a first century historian. And when he hits the ground, he doesn't die. And he has a chance to recant. And because he won't recant, because he won't deny that he's seen the resurrected Jesus, they kill him then. We believe because of a man like Paul. Paul was one of the halves. He grew up in a solid Jewish home, and he had the greatest rabbi of his day, 
what Jews would say is maybe perhaps one of the greatest rabbis of all time. It was Gamaliel. And he sat under Gamaliel's teaching and he grew up and he became a Pharisee, one of the prestigious Jewish leaders, Jewish officials. And he was opposing anyone who said that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. In fact, the first martyr in all of Christian history is Stephen. And we read about him in the book of Acts. And when Stephen is being stoned to death, Paul gives full approval because he's there and he holds everyone's coat so that they can chuck rocks. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul was on his way up to Damascus. He had a handwritten letter. It, it authenticated him. And he was going up to Damascus. And he was going to look for other people who were proclaiming that this Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. People who said they were eyewitnesses. I've seen it. And I'll testify that this Jesus was risen from the dead. And Paul is going up north. And he's going to go get those folks. And he's going to drag them back to Jerusalem. And on his way there, he encounters the resurrected Christ. He saw him. He's an eyewitness. And it changed his life forever. He's written two-thirds of our New Testament. He spent the rest of his life traveling the Mediterranean Rim. He was in places like Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and Thessalonica. And he was planting churches. And he was proclaiming the resurrected Christ. He spent the rest of his life being whipped, being beaten, being torn, uh, torn with, with a whip. He was shipwrecked because he was traveling. That's Paul. Paul died in prison. All of these men gave their lives because they wouldn't deny the resurrected Christ. If you take the 12 disciples, Judas was the betrayer. Judas went out and hanged himself. We know that. Of the remaining 11, 10 of them were killed specifically. They were either perhaps some of them, perhaps crucified. They were beheaded. They were stoned. They were thrown in prison. The only one who didn't was John. And John died in exile on an, on an island, an island called Patmos. And what happened was that the Jewish officials found out that every time we stone one of these Christians, every time we kill one of these Christians, every time we behead one of these Christians, Christianity blows up. It, 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 it's going nuts. And so instead of killing John, they just sent him off for a giant timeout. You'll be on this island the rest of your life, and you'll die there in exile. Right? And so I... I I uh, love the fact that, that this is true, but I would say just something slightly more modern. Now, if you're my age or older, you would know the name Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate uh, affairs. And uh, Chuck Colson was uh, oftentimes called Nixon's henchman. Chuck Colson eventually went to prison because he pled guilty to obstruction of justice. While Chuck Colson was in prison, he came to Christ. He surrendered his life to Jesus. He committed his life to Christ. Watch what Chuck Colson now later says, and I love this. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. You would ask how? He says, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, and they never once denied it. Everyone was beaten, they were tortured, they were stoned, and they were put in prison. They wouldn't have endured that if it weren't true. He goes on and he says, Watergate, it embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so here's the deal. I can't convince you that the resurrection happened. I don't know for a fact that the resurrection happened. But I would say this, 
as we look at it, it's actually, as crazy as this sounds, it's the most probable explanation is that the Messiah predicted that he would rise from the dead, and then he did. So what do we do with this? That's a lot to think about. What do we do with this? Well, I would say this, first of all, if a guy lives like Jesus and then says that I'm going to be killed and says over and over and over, in three days I'll rise from the dead, if he does it, I say we listen to that guy. Right? So I'm going to give you a couple things to think about that Jesus said. You know that uh, you might know the name Lazarus. Jesus had a very close friend, and his name was Lazarus. And Lazarus had two sisters. They were Mary and they were Martha. And they lived in Bethany, which is a village down in the southern part of Israel, down in Judea, down by Jerusalem. And one time Jesus was in the north, and he was up in Galilee. And Lazarus became very sick, very sick to the point where people were extremely concerned for him. And so the sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word up to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you've got to come. Our brother is very sick. Well, by the time Jesus finally gets to Bethany, Lazarus is dead. And so when Jesus gets there, Martha, she jumps right up and she says, Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now watch. Watch what he says. He says, Martha, anybody who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Jesus is talking about the afterlife. And the reason I bring that up is because I think actually, I think all of us, there's a little piece of all of us, isn't there, in the back of our heads where we just go, I wonder what's going to be up with that. I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what there really is after this life. And Jesus is saying this, that after this life, those who believe in me. Now, if you're a regular here, you know this, and you're probably sick and tired of me beating you over the head with this, but this word believes in the Greek, we've talked about it, is the Greek word pistis. And pistis literally means, it's translated as believe or to have faith. But what it really means is to put your full trust in. It's translated as faithfulness. It's an ongoing, which means my life would reflect it, that the way that I live then would reflect Right? Jesus said, those who believe in me, those who surrender their lives to me, those who commit their life to me, those people will live even after dying, and everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. I mean, there's eternal life. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's just a transition. Now, what I love best about this, this, whole, this whole two verses is this word, anyone and everyone. Because people will say this to me all the time. Well, Neil, I, I get this from people all the time. Neil, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know my history. And I'm like, you're right, and I don't need to. I know the faithfulness of our God. I know the grace and the mercy of our God. This is for anyone. It doesn't matter what your educational background is. It doesn't matter what your financial situation is. It doesn't what you, matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter. This is available for anyone or everyone. It's eternal life, and I think we ought to consider that. But there's another thing that Jesus said that I think we ought to consider. Jesus, uh, as often he did, he, he really frustrated the Pharisees because he, this time, on this occasion, he healed a blind man. And just so you know, this is a blind man that everybody knew as, oh, that's the blind man. That's the guy who's been blind since his birth. That's the guy who's blind and sit the city gate and begs. We know this guy. He's the blind man. And Jesus heals him. The promise, he healed him on the Sabbath. And the Jewish officials get really upset about that. And so Jesus begins, it leads to this conversation. And, and Jesus is trying to explain who he is, and he's trying to describe himself. And so he uses a metaphor that everybody in that culture, everybody of that age would have known. And that is he starts to talk about sheep and sheep in a sheep's pen. And he says, hey, you know what? When thieves come to the sheep pen, you know what they do? 
they crawl over the fence. They, they climb over the fence. That's what thieves do because they're going to do harm. That's what thieves do. But then he goes on to describe himself as the good shepherd. And he says, here's what I do. A good shepherd just walks through the gate. They walk right through and the sheep aren't afraid. In fact, the sheep recognize his voice. In fact, the sheep follow him. And that's what was happening in that day. That people were just listening to Jesus and they were fascinated with Jesus. And then they'd follow after Jesus. So Jesus has been having this conversation, right? And now he gets toward the end and now he's going to, boom, he's going to drop the, drop the hammer, right? And he says this, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Hey, 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 my purpose, Jesus said, this is the reason I came. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Question, and who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want a life that's rich and satisfying? Who doesn't want a life that has meaning and purpose and is actually fulfilling? Now, note what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, I've come so that they would have life that's really easy and they'd never have troubles again and they'd never have trials and they'd never have tribulations. No, he's not saying that at all. In fact, he's actually saying the opposite of that. Jesus said, I came so that in their life, which is real, and in their hardship and in their sickness and in their loss and in their grieving, I'm saying in that they can have a rich and satisfying life. Man, they can have a life with meaning and purpose right in the midst of it. And I think, man, eternal life, rich and satisfying life, even in our hardship, I always think, who doesn't want that? And so I think I want it. I know that. I would think you'd want that. I think if you're online this morning watching, I think you want that. But I think this also, you want it for your best friend. You want it for your significant. You want it for your children. You want it for your parents. You want it for your just really, really good friends. Who doesn't want that? Okay. So now what? Like when we leave here, what do we do practically? What do we do with all this? So I'm going to give you three suggestions, just three things to think about. This is where I'd start. If you say, hey, uh, I've never really gone to church. I don't really know about the whole God thing. I'm not really sure. I think this is where you'd start. I think if you're somebody who says, uh, I go to church, but I'm not really sure, but I go to church anyway, right? This is what I would start with. This is what I would start with regardless. Pray this simple prayer. We'll do a little bit just here in a second. But just pray this. Just sincerely, just earnestly pray this. God, reveal yourself to me. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says this. If you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. It's a promise of God. If you seek me, if you pursue me, and he says wholeheartedly, with your whole heart, if you diligently pursue me, God says, you're going to find me. Well, how do we seek after God? So let me give you a couple suggestions just on this one. A couple suggestions. Number one, we seek God and God reveals himself to us through the Bible. Stop. I got it. I hear people all the time like, I don't understand the Bible. I can't read the Bible. I don't get it. Okay, I'm just going to start it this way, and I'm going to simplify this for you. Don't try to read it from cover to cover, not for starters. Don't start at the very beginning, not for starters. This is what I would do. I'd go to the Gospel of John. You want John the Gospel, not we have John the Gospel, and then in the back we have John the Epistles. Go to the Gospel of John and just start reading. But here's the deal. Before you start reading, pray this. God... Reveal yourself to me. And then begin to read. And then seek understanding. I'd start with the word of God. I'd start reading that. Number two, we also grow and God reveals himself to us when we hear God's word taught. 
And so I would say this, man, if you've had a church and you've left that church and used to go to that church, but you haven't gone there for a long time, get back to your church. If it's a church that teaches the word of God, go back to your church and dig in and listen to the teaching of God. I'll say this quite honestly, if you don't have a church or you don't have a church that is teaching the word of God, We'd love to have you here. I would love to have you here. I will say this, quite honestly, this room on a typical Sunday is just full of a bunch of just mediocre people who are saying, did that sound bad? Okay. It's filled with the most fabulous people. And we just study the word of God and then we just say this, hey, let's, let's help each other. Let's help each other apply this to our lives. Like, let's do that together. Can we, can we help each other? That's what the body of Christ does. So I do that. And then uh, I've got two other suggestions. Number one, pray the simple prayer. God, reveal yourself to me. Pray that earnestly. Pray it diligently. Pray for the next 30 days. But two other suggestions I'm going to give you, very practical suggestions. Number one, I'd sign up for Alpha. Alpha's a class that we offer here on Wednesday nights. We kind of started last Wednesday, but the big kickoff is this Wednesday. We meet here in the building. We start at 6 o'clock, and we all share a dinner together. We sit at round tables, and we have discussion. And then we're going to answer questions like, who is Jesus, and why did Jesus have to die, and what's prayer all about, and why would I read a Bible, and how do I understand the Bible, and why would I believe the Bible, right? Alpha is that class. And so here's the deal. Again, if you're somebody who says, I'm not sure about God, but I'm curious about God, but I've never really latched on to God, Alpha is for you. If you're somebody who says, I'm really new to faith, but I still have a lot of questions, Alpha is for you. If you're somebody here this morning who says, I used to go to church, but then I don't like the church anymore, so I quit going to church, but now I'm curious about church, Alpha is for you. We'll have a table in the lobby. When you leave here this morning, you can stop at the table. You can register online. There's no cost. There's no fee. Dinner is free. You can come the, worst, you can come the first night, and you can say, that might, that might be the worst experience of my life, and you never have to come back. But Alpha is the place where you go and ask those questions. And then I want to give you one third one. So number one, just pray this. Begin to pray this. God, reveal yourself to me. Number two, I'd sign up for Alpha. Quite honestly, my wife and I will be there. I'll, I'll facilitate it. It's, it's a great discussion. But here's the third thing I'm going to uh, just, just ask you to think about, and, and I would encourage this. Number three, I would say this. Be here next week, and I want to specifically say why next week. Because next week we start a four-week series. We're interrupting our series in Romans. We've been studying the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, and we're doing a four-week series, and it's called Attacking God. And here's why we're doing this. This is one of the most interesting things to me. We have a movement in the country right now, and it's a, it's a group, and it's called the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Not affiliated with anything. They're non-affiliated. Don't, don't, don't need God, don't want to know God, don't need to know God. It's all of that. It's very interesting. It's now 23% of the population. It's 35% of millennials. It's primarily male, and it's primarily, primarily educated. And they're just saying this, I don't feel the need for God. And so people are moving away just in, in, in general from religion, from all religions. They're just moving away from religions. And what's interesting, I can't speak for other religions. I feel strong convictions about Christianity and, and why this, is, uh, this problem is occurring in Christianity. I've never met anybody who, who really studied Jesus and really learned about Jesus and went, can't stand that Jesus. Don't like him at one bit. Nobody's ever said that. So here's what it says to me. It ain't the message. It's the messenger.
If that's you this morning and you walked away from the, from the church because of maybe well-meaning pastors or a well-meaning Sunday school teacher or a well-meaning parent, this is what I always say, and I think this in my head when I hear these deconversion stories. You walked away from a God. You didn't walk away from the God. We've conveyed a false God to you. We've miscommunicated who God really is. And so what happens is when that God doesn't line up with your life, you're ticked and you walk away and you say, I don't need any of that God. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about who are the false gods that we've been actually teaching about. And then we'll flip it toward the end of that message and we'll say, here's who God really is. And so I would say this, come and examine who is the real God. Who's the real God? Again, I don't think you've walked away from the God. I think you walked away from a God. Let's stand to be dismissed this morning. And as you stand this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something, if you would. I'm just going to ask you to open your hands like this as we pray. Just hold your hands like this. This is just a sign of I'm receiving. And so, Father, we celebrate today the resurrection. We celebrate it. We celebrate it, God. Jesus, because of the eyewitnesses, we believe you rose from the dead. That's a game changer. And so now, Father, with our arms open, with our hands open, I'm just going to pray this. God, in this room right now, would you reveal yourself to us right now? And I'm going to ask you to just simply pray that this morning. God, reveal yourself to me wherever you came from this morning, whatever your life experience is this morning. Would you just pray this prayer? God, reveal yourself, and then we're just going to listen for a minute. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're in this room right now, and I'm asking you to do the supernatural. I'm asking you to reveal yourself to those who are seeking it in a way that only you can, Holy Spirit. It's not something that I can conjure up, any of our pastors can conjure up. We can't do that. And so, Holy Spirit, would you begin the process over the next hours, over the next days, over the next weeks? Would you give us a desire to seek after you? And as we seek God, would you fulfill your promise that you will reveal yourself? Do that, Father. Reveal yourself, holy God, in a real way, in a way that's tangible, in a way that people can't deny, in a, people, in a way that people will know that was God revealing himself to me. Do that, God, and do it for your glory. We believe, Father, that you sent your son. It speaks of your great love. You desire relationship. Jesus, you said it. You want us to have a rich and satisfying life in the midst of our tribulations. So now as we leave this place this morning, Father, as we leave this building, would you help us to go be the church now? a world that desperately needs it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.